Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Liar's Poker. We usually think that Wall Street is where financial elites gather. People who work there have excellent academic qualifications and glamorous resumes. Graduating from the Ivy League is also a must. They can not only communicate endlessly with customers in different languages but also are incredibly familiar with market fluctuations and quotations. All kinds of complex calculations are simple to them. They are well-groomed, well-dressed, and well-behaved. They smile confidently, go to the gym regularly, and like to run marathons. Muscle is seen as a symbol of energy. They are darlings of social networking. Well-dressed, full of financial jargon, and able to conduct billions of dollars worth of transactions are the key traits of those on Wall Street. However, Liar's Poker shows us another side of Wall Street. A place filled with fraud and lies where traders swear all the time and bankers are hypocritical and greedy. Although the Wall Street elites in the book were not villains, they were definitely not noble. That's what Wall Street was like in the 1980s. The author of this book Michael Lewis once worked at Salomon Brothers, the largest bond broker in the United States at the time. Its chairman was also called the King of Wall Street by Business Week. When the author entered this company, it was precisely at the turning point of declining. The author recorded all the inside stories he saw on Wall Street and some situations from the book are still happening today. In this book, the author gives us a complete detailed and almost unreserved description of what he has seen and heard, including Wall Street's way of treating people, office politics, and the working and living conditions of everyone on the trading floor. He depicts a real, three-dimensional, flesh-and-blood Wall Street. Through the author's description, we can see that the rule governing Wall Street is the survival of the fittest law of the jungle. Next, we will share with you the essence of this book in the following three parts. Part 1, The Unwritten Rules of Working in Wall Street. Part 2, Wall Street was a dramatic stage. Part 3, Wall Street was a playground full of lies. Okay, let's now move to the first part, The Unwritten Rules of Working in Wall Street. In the 1980s, investment banking was an enviable profession. Even elementary school students often wrote in their essays, I want to be an investment banker, I will be a millionaire, I will have a big house, it will be fun. But it was not easy to join Wall Street and become a superior investment banker. We must first understand the unwritten rules of working in Wall Street. In 1982, the author graduated from Princeton University with a bachelor's degree in art history. His degree had nothing to do with finance, and there were high barriers to entry into the financial industry on Wall Street. The author also had no professional advantages or work experience, so it is not at all surprising that he encountered many rejections. In the beginning, when interviewed by Lehman Brothers, the author was asked, why do you want to be an investment banker? The author was honest. He said it was for the money. We all know that the financial industry is a business of making money with money, and this is also why it is fascinating. However, because of his answer, the author was rejected on the spot. Isn't it strange that you can't talk about money when looking for a job on Wall Street? 
In the author's words, never for a moment did I doubt the acceptability to an investment banker of a professed love of money. Regarding this failed interview experience, the author joked in a humorous tone, Firstly, you must not talk about money during the interview. Suppose the interviewer asked why you wanted to be an investment banker. The correct answer should include challenging yourself, the ecstasy of making a big deal, and the excitement of working with smart people. In short, you must not talk about money. Second, learn to speak with a mask on. The author regretted that he did not seize the opportunity to praise investment bankers during the interview, and ridicule commercial bankers for short working hours and weak ambitions. Even though these words were not sincere. This idea was explained to Lewis by a friend who eventually joined Lehman Brothers. It took several years for the author to convince himself that this was not necessarily rhetoric. As he says in the book, that money wasn't the binding force was of course complete and utter bullshit. But inside the Princeton University Career Services Office in 1982 you didn't let the truth get in the way of a job. Two years later, the author was about to finish his master's degree in economics at the London School of Economics. He was honored to have dinner at St. James's Palace under the arrangement of a distant cousin who married a German business magnate. It was a fundraising meeting where attendees could see the Queen of England up close. At the meeting, the author met the wife of a managing director at Salomon Brothers and expressed his desire to join the company. With the help of the managing director's wife, the author was invited to have breakfast with the head of Salomon Brothers Human Resources Department. It was considered as an informal interview. However, after the meeting, the author still didn't receive an offer. After consulting his classmates, he knew that Salomon Brothers would not take the initiative to give an offer, which was not prestigious enough for them. Therefore, after Salomon Brothers hinted that you might get a job, you must ask for it yourself. So the author followed this plan and took the initiative to call the person in charge of human resources. After introducing himself and stating his intention, he successfully joined Salomon Brothers as he expected. After joining Salomon Brothers, the author began his career as a trainee. Salomon Brothers training however was not the harmonious atmosphere of collaboration, support, and solidarity you might expect. It was full of chaos and competition. There were in turns not as lucky as the author who had fought each other against a 60 to 1 elimination rate to receive the offer. The training often boils down to anarchy where the bad drove out the good, the big drove out the small, and the brawn drove out the brains. Obviously, the company believed that after interns joined the company, they should continue to be trained and the weak would be further eliminated. As a result, ingratiation became the norm and flattery were common. As a company lecturer put it, being a winner at Salomon meant being a he-man in a jungle. Here, no one would gently hold your hand, tell you how to do things. They would give you a tough time and let you understand that learning a craft is not easy. You have to put in some effort if you want to learn the real skill. This was just the beginning. The real purgatory was when they were asked to go to the trading floor after class. Interns were at the bottom of the food chain at the Salomon Brothers. The traders and investment managers in the upper level didn't think that interns were the future of the company or that they should be carefully trained. On the contrary, the traders thought they were worthless. Therefore, the interns could not learn anything from their seniors. They were ignored. 
Some traders with bad tempers would yell at the interns and arrogantly order them around. As a result, the interns were always cautious on the trading floor and dared not make any mistakes. One intern even stood at the elevator entrance on the 41st floor every day for a full hour, watching the elevator door open and close. She did not dare to step out of the elevator and enter the trading floor until one day she was fired. Apparently enduring humiliation is the price interns must pay. Towards the end of the training courses, the interns discovered that it was still unknown whether the company would hire them. After one year, half of these interns would have to leave the company. After five months of tormenting training, the interns were facing either being assigned to various departments or the fate of being eliminated. Thus, a new round of jungle competition began. The author said that if you wanted to get a good job, it depended on luck, appearance and flattery. Human factors did not control the first two items. Therefore, efforts should be made in the third item which meant that a backer must be found. Befriending a managing director was not enough, you had to befriend one with clout. However, how should you find a backer? In this regard, many interns developed a skill, create the illusion of popularity. The author also used this trick. First, he created a strong connection with a guy on the trading floor. Through this relationship, he made others believe that someone was eagerly inviting him to join. Then these people would pass the word to other people on the trading floor. In this way, the head of the department that the author was yearning for finally heard the discussion and invited the author to have breakfast. In the book, the author uses a seemingly cynical tone of humor to express his helpless feeling that as a newcomer, he had to flatter others on Wall Street. So far we've covered the unwritten rules of working in Wall Street. First, in order to pass the interview, you must never talk about money. Second, Wall Street job hunting was fierce, and you needed opportunities to get a job. Third, you needed to find a backer in order to pass the training period smoothly. Through his own career experience, the author has satirized the hypocritical, chaotic, bullying, and full-of-lies business culture of working in Wall Street in a humorous and cynical tone. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.